All right, I don't know about you, but it sounded like Ricky was doing a little preaching. Well, actually, I guess he wanted to do some preaching. To be honest with you, Sally's the smart one in that, in that thing. So uh, that is definitely the, um, the, uh, the, the relationship they have. But they are able to get in each other's face, aren't they? And well, actually, I don't think Sally's ever done anything wrong. So maybe, maybe, uh, maybe that's not the way it's supposed to work. So good morning. Uh, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles today. We're going to jump right in. Uh, I have, uh, like I said, I went a couple minutes over in the first service, and I want to keep things moving. A lot of announcements, a lot of different things going on, so, so uh, please uh, join with me as you turn into your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14, and let me emphasize this, for the last time in this series, I think, all right, wow, 1 Corinthians 14 is one of those passages that has been, uh, we have been digging in, we've been digging deep, I've been Probably uh, placing some of you outside of your comfort zone as I have been outside my own comfort zone as I've been wrestling with this. I, I intend to, to uh, place you outside your comfort zone maybe a little bit more today, at least a few of you, maybe. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but we're going to continue our, our study of Paul's focus on corporate worship. We have been in, this, in the context of corporate worship uh, for many chapters now. Specifically, uh, chapters uh, 12, 13, and 14 have been focusing on the exercise of spiritual gifts within the body, right? And, uh, and, and that was really Ricky's point, wasn't it? He was, uh, as he is, he is bringing to our attention that he had what he thought was his gifting, and he had the ministry that he wanted to do. Uh, but as we understand, our service within the body of Christ is really supposed to be uh, somehow tied to our spiritual gifting, uh, which we may understand and we may not understand but God provides opportunities for us to, to serve within the body of Christ. And we're going to look at a lot of that today. And I just want to encourage you this morning to please uh, have your hearts open to what God would do in your lives, in your life, uh, specifically in terms of serving uh, within uh, this corporate gathering. All right? So we're going to, for 12, 13, 14, we've been focused on gifts. But really, we've been in the context of corporate worship for much longer. And uh, so we know Paul's addressed uh, what was going on in the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. Uh, he's been dealing with uh, just different aspects of worship all along. Uh, some of you may know that for the three years prior to coming here, and really it overlapped just a little bit with me getting here. Uh, I, no, actually it was four years. Um, th- actually, it was a total of four. I said three the first service. I just realized it was four years. I was involved in a degree program, and the emphasis was on theology and worship. And so worship has, been, has become something uh, you would think it had been always important to me, and it was in some way. But new questions were asked in my life and in my training, and, and, uh, and I was getting stretched, and I continue to be stretched as we consider what worship looks like. So for one of the classes, I had to do a book review on, on John MacArthur's book called Worship. Uh, it's a good book. Uh, I'm, I'm a fan of his writing. I, I tell people I'm a fan of his writing more than his preaching, uh, uh, but I am definitely a fan of his, his writing. And uh, in my review, I mentioned that MacArthur concludes uh, the particular section I was talking about on the nature of worship by explaining uh, the dimensions of worship. He covers that in chapter 3. Uh, that are to be lived out by those who have been saved to worship. So let, let's, let's look at it. He, he lists three dimensions of worship. He says there's an outward, outward dimension of worship, how we treat one another. Have you thought about the fact that when you come together, when we all come together for corporate worship, we are doing this together. This is not something just done by the person behind the pulpit or the one that's behind the piano or the organ or, or any other thing. We are, we are all in this together. You are supposed to be engaged in worship 
as you come. We often call it going to church, but maybe we should say I'm going to worship. Uh, He says, so there's this outward dimension, how we treat others. He said, there's this inward dimension that is how we behave. Um, Is it pleasing to the Lord? The idea there, are we coming with the right heart? Ricky, all right, is it's a puppet show, right? We get that, but he had the wrong heartbeat as to what he was trying to, what God was trying to do. But there's this inward reality for us when we come to worship. And the question is, you know, are we pleasing God in our worship? And then he gives the third dimension, which is an upward dimension. And he says it's our thanksgiving and praise to God. Uh, This idea of, 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 of recognizing what God is doing and responding to him. Now, I think MacArthur, uh, or excuse me, Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 14 is really, and the text we're going to focus on today is 20, verses 26 through 40 through the end of the chapter. I think he really is, is focusing on uh, the outward and the inward dimensions of worship, not so much the upward, although it's there, certainly. But he points out that Christians are saved to worship because, notice this, this is what he says, justification, this is MacArthur, justification before God and true worship of him are inseparable, all right? So justification before God, our right standing before God is part of worship. He says justification before God and true worship of him are inseparable because you cannot be a non-believer in Jesus Christ. You cannot be someone who's never come to faith in what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf and somehow worship God when our worship is anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nor should we be a, a one who has been justified, as he says, justification before God. What does that mean? It means that we have a right standing before God. We, we have been justified on the cross of Calvary. Our sins and the sins of all those uh, in the world all have been placed upon Jesus Christ on the cross. And he paid the sin debt. And his, our unrighteousness was placed on him. And when we come to faith in that, his righteousness is imputed to us. It's, it's, a, it's put in our account. And, and, and God says, you are justified in my eyes. You are righteous. Folks, that is the power of the gospel. That is, the, that is the, what makes the difference in, in lives. And it better have made the difference in your life today. I'm telling you, if you're here this morning and somehow you, have, you don't understand that you have a right standing before God because because of what Jesus Christ has done and your faith in that, God would say, you, it's as, as if you've never sinned. If you don't know that, that peace, then I encourage you, come to faith in what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. He died for your sins, and his righteousness is given to all those who have come to faith in him. And, and he says justification before God and true worship of God are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. One does not become a true worshiper without first being justified, and every person who is truly justified will become a true worshiper. He's looking to the future. He's like, all those, even if somehow you're, we're, uh, someone is dysfunctional in their worship, ultimately, if they're a believer in Jesus Christ, they will become a true worshiper, and that worship will take place for eternity. Then he asks this question. He says, are you a true worshiper. That was what's on uh, MacArthur's heart when he's writing the book. Are you a true worshiper? And that's for anyone who's reading his book, but I'm sharing it with you as, as a group right now. Are you a true worshiper? His intent there would say, are you a genuine believer in Jesus Christ? So I'll ask you, are you a genuine believer in Jesus Christ? And, and that's where we get so caught up in Christianese and, you know, some preachers would be like, and all God's people said... 
Wow, you're weak. All right. Now, all God's people say amen because it's true, but not all people who say amen are necessarily believers. You know, and, and we get caught up in some of this aspect of stuff, and we have to met gen- we believe in genuine, uh, uh, excuse me, we believe in regenerate church membership. In other words, that, that all those who are going to unite with us in between services uh, for the last two weeks, I've been meeting with people and, and deacons, but uh, we've been meeting with people who are seeking to join our fellowship, right? Our family of believers. And we need to hear their testimony of faith. And, 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 and it's always a joy to hear someone's testimony come to faith in Jesus Christ. But, but you know, we want to make sure that when people say amen, right, all God's people, we want to make sure that we're all God's people. And so if you, if you don't feel that you are one of us, I hope it's not because we've somehow shunned you. Uh, maybe it's because your life is not necessarily, you feel somehow inadequate to be at church. And, and if that inadequacy is coming because it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit of sin in your life, I'm good with that because I have had the same conviction. Uh, please don't let us keep you away from this fellowship. But if, you experiencing, if you're experiencing... Uh, uh, guilt from sin, then come to faith in Jesus Christ and let us help you and unite with us as we seek to grow because true worshipers are truly justified. And are you a true worshiper today? I hope so. But that's on the faith scale. What I'm, what I'm going to do now is transition a little bit over into the uh, life of the church uh, perspective. Within the body of Christ, within the genuine believers, are you, am I, a true worshiper? Am I someone who understands uh, worship? So as we've been going through this, uh, this series, we, we have, the last couple of weeks we've, uh, we've been, helps when you turn it on, uh, we've been co- considering this question. We're not going to consider this question in depth, but it's to bring us into the context. Uninterpreted tongue spoken in corporate worship is a source of confusion rather than confession. I preached that the last couple of weeks. I'm not really going to go into that today, but we are in the context of Paul addressing a local body of believers, an assembly of Christians, a gathering of people who profess Jesus Christ, whatever way you want to say it, we know it as the church. Uh, but here we see that Paul has been dealing with this uh, idea of tongues and prophecy. And he concludes that prophecy is better, in tongue, better than tongues for corporate worship. And he, and he says, uh, as we go on, he points out to this big idea. This is what we discussed last week. The church is best edified when God's word is spoken in clarity. And that's what I seek to do. That's what anyone who comes behind this pulpit to teach or preach. They seek to unpack the word of God clearly. Sometimes we succeed. Sometimes we do not. All right? And that's why it's upon you to also engage in, in Word and take that study home and, and, and wrestle with things, as many of you do. Uh, but we, the last two weeks, we considered that the church is best edified when God's Word is spoken in clarity. Uh, today, what we want to focus on is the church is also edified. I should put also. Uh, it's, uh, it's best edified, but there's other ways that the church is edified, built up, strengthened. And it, the church is, is edified when worship is exercised in humility towards others. All right, so I'm going to, on purpose today, I'm going to challenge you uh, in this area of humility. I do believe it's at the core of what Paul's trying to communicate in this text. Even though the word is not there, as you apply it, I don't think there's any other uh, conclusion that we can come to. The church is edified when worship is exercised in humility towards others. Let me just tell you where we're going to be uh, today in this text. We're going to start in verse 26, and we're going to talk about how acts of worship are intended to strengthen Christians. 
What takes place in this room on a given Sunday, we are not a performance-based ministry. We are not a performance-based event. We don't come and, and, and come up here and preach and play music and sing. and serve. We're, we're not looking for applause. Now, I recognize that we applaud, right? But that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for to, to serve, to worship, to, to lead others in worship. And, and if we do it right, we see, according to this, that the, the Christians are strengthened. When you come to church, we say that. When you come to worship, you are coming, hopefully, with the intent of engaging in some element of God's uh, word so that you can grow, you can mature, you can be strengthened. Maybe it's just strengthened strength for the day, to get through the day. Maybe it's the strength for the week, and, and every week you come back. I used to always say, I mean, Wednesday nights was my midweek strengthening event. I would come to Wednesday night Bible study. I didn't want to go. I'm in my work boots. I'm filthy. I, I, I was like, I can either go home or I can go to church. Ah, I'll go to church. And I'd sit there in the back row, just exhausted. And all of a sudden, I'd be like, man, I really needed that. And Wednesday nights was, was very formative for me in my Christian life. But here we see that acts of worship are intended to strengthen Christians. We're going to look at that. We're going to look in verses 27 through 38, which is the bulk of, of the text that we're going to engage in. And, and this is what we're supposed to understand. Christians are strengthened when they exercise humility towards others in worship. That's the context we're in, right? And we're living it out right here, right now. And then we'll conclude with the idea that humility towards others in worship empowers right worship. That worship that we, we all want to be involved in, all right? So, so that's where we're going to be today. So we're going to start off by uh, uh, looking at Acts, uh, excuse, at Acts, right, at verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, and we're going to see that the, the acts of worship are intended to strengthen the church. Notice what he says here in verse 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. So Paul is, is drawing our attention. First of all, he's concluding not only his thought from verse 26 to 40, because I will bring your attention if you'll look at those two verses just briefly. Uh, in the end of verse 26, he says, let all things be done for edification. We have seen that over and over again. And when I preached this particular passage uh, during our series of women in worship and what that looks like, we, we emphasize the number of times the word edification is used in this chapter. It's, more, it's used more than any other chapter in Scripture. Uh, this idea of building up others and, and, and uh, being strengthened. But notice that, that let all things be done in edification is tied together to the very last verse of the, of the chapter, verse 40. It says, let all things be done decently in an order. Some aspect of edifying the body of believers is tied to doing things properly and orderly. And, and so we'll get there, and I'm just going to tie those two together right off the bat because those are the, the driving thought of this, but the bulk of it is going to be experienced as we get into the middle verses. So, so it is important for us to understand, and he says, how is it then, brethren, this idea, he's, he's drawing to a conclusion. He's saying, what are we supposed to, how are we supposed to uh, uh, live out our Christianity in light of all that he's been teaching them? He says, hey, listen, notice this. Whenever you come together, you each have a psalm, you each have a teaching, teaching, you each have a tongue, you each have a revelation, you have an interpretation. And he says, let all things be done for edification. The one thing we want to notice about that verse is all those giftings of the Holy Spirit, the ones that he chooses to draw from, are all speaking gifts. 
All right, he's not, he's not, this is not a, an exhaustive list as we've taught, uh, uh, mentioned multiple times through this study. Paul's not one, he's not interested in all the gifts and all the time. He's saying, listen, here's a, a sampling of the gifts that, will, that you can look at and understand what I'm trying to communicate. He says, listen, when you Corinthians come, you know, you got Psalms, you got teaching, you got tongues, you got revelations, you got interpretations. And what he's confronting in their first century worship uh, uh, event, uh, uh, this activity that takes place, is it was not being done well. There was confusion. Remember, that confusion is not confession. He's saying, listen, you've got to get things done decently in order, folks. You are struggling here. And and so the the purpose here is for us to understand that, that each participant is to play a role in worship based on their spiritual gift. Now, we, we have a different world of worship. All right? We're in the 21st century, not the 1st century. Uh, as, he, as he talks about here, the understanding would be that there was some interaction within worship, and people were standing and speaking, and other people were standing and speaking. They weren't, it wasn't done at the same time. We have a model where there's one person that does a, the bulk of the preaching and the teaching and the speaking over a 40 to 50 minute uh, period of time, and, and then we get up and we leave. But that's not the intent of worship. Worship isn't just to sit and listen and absorb. The intent of worship in this particular aspect of worship, uh, there are many other aspects of worship, but in this particular time, it's to to engage in the text, apply the text, and walk out to apply the text in our lives. And so we are called to live out the gospel, not just believe it. By believing, we become worshipers, true worship. By living it, that is when our worship is, is, uh, is put uh, in front of others to see. And we are supposed to live out. So acts of worship are intended to strengthen Christians. That's, what, that's the purpose of all that we're trying to accomplish here. And, and Paul's just asking, he's like, he says, he says, listen, what are we supposed to do? You have all these gifts. Uh, and he says, every gift matters. And he's encouraging, like, as you come with your gifts, let all things, this is where he specifically mentions these speaking gifts, but then at the end of that verse, he says, let all things be done for edification. He's not necessarily talking about everything done in life. He, there's plenty of places where we can make that application. What he's saying is within corporate worship, let everything be done for strengthening the body, for building up the body. And, and then he gets very practical. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. In verses 27 through 38, he says, Christians are strengthened uh, when they exercise humility towards others in worship. And then he, he focuses in on four different groups. And I hope this will work for you. I preached through this uh, section uh, back on February 7th, all right, in our series on women in worship. We took a little break from 1 Corinthians, and we engaged in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2. Uh, we dealt with a little bit of Galatians 3, and we were, we were kind of all over the map talking about women and worship. And so that when we get to the point of dealing specifically with women, I'm going to refer you to that sermon because I can't possibly preach it again. So, but I want to say, listen, Paul focuses on four groups of people when he says that humility towards others in worship is, is, that, is what, um, uh, that's how they're strengthened. And so look at this. He says in verses 27 and 28, he speaks to, specifically to the tongue speakers. He's saying, listen, tongue speakers, you need to, to worship in humility. You need to exercise humility in your worship. He says in verse 27, if anyone speaks a tongue, 
let there be two or three at the most. Uh, let there be two or at least, or at most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and God. Paul is saying to all you people who are exercising tongues over prophecy and over every other gift, he's saying, listen, if anyone, so there's this conditional clause there, a conditional sentence. He says, if anyone. Speaking in tongues is not mandatory for corporate worship. Paul says, I, I, in the, our last week, as we consider this, he says, I'd, I'd, pers- I'd rather speak five words of understanding than 10,000 words in a tongue in our corporate gathering. Why? Because prophecy edifies the body. Tongues only edifies the individual unless there's an interpreter. So Paul is saying, he's being very consistent. He says, you tongue speakers who are exalting your gifting, he says, listen, let only two, at the most three, in, in public worship. He's not mandating the presence of tongues in worship, but he is certainly allowing the, the door to be opened there. And he says, but, and let one interpret. And the question there, is it one person interpreting all the people who might speak in tongues as they have their turn? Or is it uh, one interpreter per f- person speaking? Uh, we don't fully know, all right? But there has to be. That's what he says in 28. But if there is no interpreter, there has to be an interpreter. If there's no interpreter, notice what he says. Let him keep silent. Let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. That's what we saw earlier in in the chapter is that a tongue speaker uh, edifies himself, not others. He speaks to God and and he's personally edified, but that edification doesn't transcend that and, and, and build the body. He says with an interpreter that would take place, but he says if there's no interpreter willingly submit to the to the benefit of the body and keep quiet. Choose to not exercise the gift of tongues when there's not an interpreter because it's not healthy to the body. We talked about that last week. If everyone's talking all at the same time, and we'll reference this again later, if everyone's talking, people are going to walk into the church and they're going to think you're crazy. And actually, I heard that story today, how that actually happened in a person's life. Prior to their experience, they had invited a friend to church. They walked into the church, and everybody was speaking in tongues all at the same time. And the person literally got out. The friend literally got out and walked out. And we can understand why. I mean, it's not a good thing, right? And, and I'm sure the people didn't intend for that to happen, but it's a perfect illustration of what Paul's saying. He's like, listen, keep silent if there's not an interpreter. He goes on to say there's another aspect of another group that needs to be exercising humility. Humility of prophecy speakers. Remember, Paul has said right from the beginning, prophecy is better than tongues. You tongue people, make, you tongue speaking people, make sure that you are uh, your pro- foremost focus on the edification of the body, not yourself. And so therefore, there's not an interpreter, keep silent. He says to the prophecy speakers, he says, let two or three prophets, this isn't a conditional sentence, this is, this, he said, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. So, so here we see how the first century worship is different than ours. It would be the idea, we wouldn't be gathering in a big auditorium, we might be gathering in a, in a, in a household and there's a group of people, maybe they're in a circle. I'm sure there's a leader of some sort, but there would be this idea that this possibility if someone could actually stand up or raise a hand or whatever, and that would, that would indicate that I have something to say. Now, I mean, it's not normal for us to do that, right? If someone were to stand up right now and just stand there, I would get really uncomfortable because I wouldn't know what's going to be said. 
But maybe if it was a testimony service and, and, and I said, all right, who's that? And I see someone standing. Oh, they must want to go next. I would understand that. Well, in first century worship, as, as Paul is addressing this, he's saying, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another, that means that the person speaking prophecy, see, it, it, this is the overriding thing. It's not about you, prophecy speaker. It's not about you, tongue speaker. It's the idea of you are supposed to defer to others. And if you're, if you're that prophecy speaker and you're number one of three and you see someone stand up next, you're like, oh, oh my time is up or he, that person has something to say. I'm going to go ahead and defer. And he says, he says uh, if anything is revealed to another who sits, let the first keep silent. There it is again. Tongue speakers, no interpreter, keep silent prophecy speakers. There's someone else that wants to say something out of the initiation of the Holy Spirit. Let them do so. Keep silent. Verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. There we have again, the edification that takes place here is one of learning and encouragement. And this is what, this is what Paul's emphasis was. He's like, listen, this is what the goal of prophecy is, is to one by one. Let's do it orderly. Let's do it the right way, that all, the benefit of the body, is, is, is his priority. And in verse 32, he says, And the, spirit of the pro- spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And, and there's a lot going on in that last statement. I'm, if, if your version may not have that uh, exactly where we have it in the New King James. There's a question of whether, that, whether those words go with the thought before or thought after. I'm going to just re- excuse me, read it as, as, uh, as it's in my text here. But he says, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. There's this element of the prophecy speakers. Humility in prophecy speakers is to, is to say, not only will I sit down and let someone else speak, he says, listen, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Not only were they supposed to be engaged in taking turns they were accountable to another group of people. You know, when, when, when you understand that it's not about you and you are accountable to others, there's an element of humility there. I, I am accountable to you every week. In some weeks, it's easy. In some weeks, it's not. Some weeks, I'm comfortable with what I've said. Other weeks, I kicked myself for days, right, because I didn't say something or I said something. Listen, I'm accountable to you. And I've mentioned that people are, are holding me accountable by rightfully, lovingly challenging me in perspectives. And that's what we're all supposed to be doing. So when we see here the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets, there's a lot of discussion of what that means. But I'm saying within the, the uh, aspect of worship, which would, incu- which would include the communication of God's word in any form or fashion, all of us, and, and Paul does that elsewhere, he challenges, uh, he challenges everyone to b- participate in this evaluation process. Uh, he says in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 uh, through 20, uh, 20, 21, he says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Uh, in 1 John 4, 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. In 1 Corinthians, uh, we see that Paul is, is emphasizing here the need for prophecies to be evaluated, and that evaluation process, you must exercise humility. I must do it as I teach and as I preach. You must, as you are accountable for everything you said that God said, 
you're accountable for that. And if someone comes to you and says, brother, sister, you know, if you're a lady who's, who's uh, teaching in, in a ladies group or a Sunday school and, and one of the other workers says, well, that didn't sound right, right? Well, you're obligated to go to that person and encourage that person, challenge that person in a loving way that affirms and, and matures them in faith. We are called to be, uh, practice humility uh, when we are communicating God's word. All right? And Paul says it's the way, this is the way it is in all the churches. The Corinthians were thinking that they had somehow arrived at a different level of spirituality. They had knowledge that other people didn't have. Paul, Paul affirms their knowledge. Uh, they have giftings. Paul, Paul, Paul affirms their gifting. But he, what he's trying to get them to understand is stop looking at yourself. Start looking at others. And the fact is, there are others within the body of, of the church at Corinth that have gifts. Let them exercise them. There are other churches where people are exercising their gifts. Notice that, Corinthians, and, and, he, and he goes on to even point that out as, as he goes into the next portion. Um, uh, really, once we get to verse 36, we'll, we'll see that. So Paul is very concerned with the way that the local, excuse me, that local body of believers in Corinth are responding to one another and engaging with one another. And what we're supposed to see is humility. Uh, Christians are strengthened when they exercise humility towards others in worship. Humility of tongue speakers, uh, prophecy speakers need to be humble. Here's the third group. Humility of speaking women slash speaking wives. All right, This is the portion where I've already preached this uh, in, in, uh, on that February 7th, you can go to YouTube and listen to that again. Um, it, I, I engage in much of uh, all the, the nitty-gritty there. But what I'm trying to say for this week as we look at chapter 14, Paul is, is uniting tongue speakers, prophecy speakers, and women speakers. He's, he's got, these are the first three of four. And he's saying these speaking people practice humility. Well, what does he say about women slash wives? He says, let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. And when we engage in that, the reference to the law there is the uh, remembrance of, uh, of uh, Genesis chapters one and two. And because Paul, Paul references it in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, he references it, you know, and then in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, in 1 Timothy 2, he references it. He says something about women in worship, and he says, and he draws on the created order of men and then women. And so, please, go back to that, that sermon and, and digest that uh, that way. But he's saying, listen, women speakers, you have a dire desire to speak? Exercise humility. Now, what was going on in the church? There's, it's all uh, circumstantial. It's all, uh, con, uh, that's, not, that's not the right word. It's all, uh, we don't know exactly the details. Uh, it's, it's, we are assuming some things, and the idea probably is that there were women within the Corinthian church that, that were being disruptive as tongue speaking without interpreters is disruptive. And as many, many uh, prophecy speakers who are not deferring to one another, but, you know, then it's disruptive. So women in worship, speaking in worship in a, disrupt, in a disruptive fashion is, is what Paul's addressing. And he says, ladies, women, wives, keep silent in the churches. And he says there, there are specific things going on here. In the context, what we see is in verse 30, uh, we're dealing with uh, that previous statement in verse uh, 33, where he says, let, uh, excuse me, verse 32, and the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. 
what I emphasized in that previous sermon is the idea that we are dealing with women involved in publicly speaking about the prophecy of men. Now, some people think it's, it's only if a woman were going to speak about her own husband and somehow that if she disagreed with him, it would be a public embarrassment to him. But I think it transcends that. I think it actually goes to women maybe speaking about the prophecies of other wives, husbands, right? Uh, the, 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 we have to do things decently in order. And he's just saying what's appropriate for women to do. He says, listen, if they want to learn something, verse 35, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And so what, what Paul is saying, he's not, he is not saying women cannot speak in church. I'm glad that we had a lady speak, read Scripture today. And we know that for 1 Timothy 2, women are not supposed to teach men. We get that. But women can read Scripture. Women can pray, 1 Corinthians 11. Children can read Scripture. Children can pray. If they're genuine worshipers that have been justified by Jesus Christ, these are things people can do. And we can affirm that, and I do affirm that, and I think we do. And so, but he's saying this, but there was something else going on in Corinth, and he says here that these particular women, just as there was particular tongue speakers, a particular prophecy speakers, he says there were particular women, let them ask their own husbands. Wives, you're being disruptive. It's shameful for a woman to speak in church. It's shameful for a wife to speak in church. There's, reference, uh, there's a lot of uh, wrestling with that terminology. All right, but, but the, I wanted to emphasize one thing from that sermon. I'll just read part of this quote. It was, uh, again, from 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15 was the sermon on February 7th. But uh, one of the, William Mounts writes, One of the foundational issues underlying most of the discussion of the role of women in the church today is the question of whether worth is determined by role. Whether worth is determined by role. And, and the end result is No! All people, right? There's no male or female. This is the Galatians 3. There's no male or female. There's no Jew or Gentile. There's no slave or free. We are all the same in Christ. Yes, we are all saved the same way by faith in Jesus Christ. But we do not all have the same roles. And role does not dictate worth. Worth is found in Christ. Role is found through his gifting. And so I encourage you to be involved in, in worship in some way. The big idea of that particular sermon was right worship affirms God's appointed roles for men and women. They're both beautiful. But he calls them into question, and he says, ladies, you need to be silent in the context of evaluating sermons because you are, you are crossing a line into a teaching aspect, which we know is he, he does not allow women to do as part of their role. That's just, that's just the way it is. As we go on, uh, we see that uh, the, the uh, humility of tongue speakers, humility of prophecy speakers, humility of speaking women slash wives, and humility of spiritual ones. Do you think you're spiritual today? Paul had people in Corinth that thought they were highly spiritual. We have great knowledge. We have great gifts. I've already said that. Paul affirmed both of those, but he said you're exercising your, your, your giftings the wrong way. You're exercising your knowledge the wrong way. And if you remember, if you look back just briefly at chapter 12, verse 1, if you remember when we, when we studied that verse, it says, Roman, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts is what is in the New King James. Maybe in your translation as well. That word gifts is supplied. It's not there. The other option for that translation is now concerning spiritual ones. It's in the, in the neuter, not the masculine. And so, so um, it is the idea, of, um, that's not the right 
scratch that thought. It's, it's the idea that work can be, it can be supplied different ways. It can be gifts, because that's the context of the passage, people say. But we, in that particular sermon, we, we said he hasn't gotten to talking about gifts yet. He's talking to spiritual ones. And we, we know, he goes on to say, you know that you were Gentiles, talking about spiritual ones. When we get into this text in, 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 in chapter 14, uh, as we get to verse 36 and 37, uh, we see that Paul calls for spiritual ones to be humble. He says, verse 36, Or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it only that it reached you? He's saying, listen, is somehow the gospel a Corinthian um, uh, concept? Is the gospel a Corinthian uh, uh, owner? Do they own the gospel? Is somehow, is this unique to just you? Paul's saying, no, these are rhetorical questions. He's saying, no, that's, that's ridiculous. The gospel goes forth and it changes lives everywhere. He, he says in verse 37, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet, that ties it into the immediate context, or spiritual, which ties it into the broader context. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. He's saying this, you prophecy speakers, I'm asking you, you knowledgeable ones, you spiritual ones, please understand, when I speak, this is Paul, not, not Greg Odiorn, when Paul speaks, he says, I am speaking the word of God. Paul is not shy. He says there is an, there is an equivocation. There is, it's, it's, there is, it's, what, what he says is the word of God. That's pretty bold to say. I can say that I'm speaking about the Word of God, I'm reading the Word of God, but I would never call you to account and say, you must do this as if it's not somehow black and white in Scripture. We are called to be communicators of God's Word in clarity. Paul's saying his Word is totally clear because it is the Word of God. And he says, you spiritual ones, if you think you're spiritual, you prophecy speakers, he says, if you are truly spiritual, you must recognize, recognize the authority of my word, so therefore humble yourselves. Paul is, in every one of these groups, he is calling them to willingly submit to someone else. Overall, it's to the body. In this last one, it's to, it's to, it's to Paul himself. He's saying, listen, uh, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. And he says, humble yourselves that way. And he, and he finishes off verse 38 with, but if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. There's a lot of questions over exactly what that means. Uh, in a nutshell, I will say this. Paul is saying, listen, humble yourselves, but if not, I'm not going to bother with you. Humble yourselves. Church, if they don't, don't have anything to do with them. If they're going to be haughty and prideful in their exercise of whatever their gifting might be, if they think their knowledge is so great and their gifting is so powerful, and yet they are not humble, they are not exercising, deferring to others, they are not seeking the edification of the church, somehow they're focused on themselves, let them live in their ignorance. I'm not going to talk about them anymore, and he doesn't. He says, let them be ignorant. So, so as we go through here, these four groups, I don't know where you might be in this group. If you're in any of these groups, all right? But I will say this. We are to practice humility in all our spiritual gifts. Paul was addressing the spiritual gifting issues within Corinth. I would say this. There is at no time where we need to exalt ourselves as Ricky was dealing with in the video. I know what I want. I want to preach God's word. And it was all about Ricky. And, and then we learned, we know very clearly, that's not right. Humble yourself, Ricky, right? Do what God has called you to do. 
I don't know if there's anyone in this that really struggles with the, the, with the way Ricky was doing it, but I will say this. Are you exercising your spiritual gifts for the benefits of others? Because if you're not exercising your spiritual gifts in, in either corporate worship directly, corporate worship as a support role, uh, and, and by nursery or sound or, or, or greeting or whatever, if you're not actively engaged in, 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 in serving the body, then you need to get involved. You need to pray, God, lead me into uh, to an area where I can serve others for your glory and for their growth. You know, Michael played a beautiful organ piece today, right? Absolutely beautiful. And I, I love the organ. I do. And you know what? As soon as I say that, there are people like, yeah, I wish I did, right? When I, when I, when I was here and I, and I candidated, I said, there's nothing evil about drums or electric guitars. I don't know if I said it, but I said, there's nothing wrong with the organ. But as we talk about, as we talk about being humble and exercising humility, sometimes we think we're the knowledgeable ones. Sometimes we think we're the ones that have it all figured out. And we take our, our belief that's on the spectrum, whether it be music, whether it be any other aspect of Christian life and doctrine and practice, right? And we have these spectrums that exist. And, and I'll just pick on the music one for a moment because we do music well here. I think we need to do music better. I'm going to say it. I think I'm going to say it. We need to do it better. You can't get better than, than what Michael did today. And you can't get better than what in terms of practice but I'm saying I think we need to get better in humility. We need to exercise humility because sometimes we exalt our own knowledge and our own beliefs and our own history and our own practices at the expense of others. And God says, humble yourself. Because the worship that God receives as worship is the worship that we want to practice, is it not? And so I can, I can love the Lord because I learned to love hymns. I didn't grow up knowing hymns. I learned to love hymns when I was in seminary. I was immediately introduced to contemporary Christian music when I was a new believer. And a lot of the songs, although they still rattle in my brain, a lot of them were not that great. But a lot of them were good. And the stuff that's out there today, there is some stuff that is really, really good and edifying and encouraging and biblically based. Please don't be a, a spiritual one and think somehow I've got it figured out. Hymns only. I've got it out. Contemporary Christian music only. Let's live somewhere in the middle where we are saying, how can my brothers and sisters in Christ grow in their understanding of the word of God and be edified in their growth and be strengthened through good music that has lyrics that edify and teach and build? Let's move on because we're out of time. He concludes with this. He says, humility towards others in worship empowers right worship. Isn't that what we want to experience? He says, therefore, brethren, notice he uses that word brethren again, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. That's how we know. Paul has never lost his focus on what he's teaching. He has been talking about prophecy in tongues for three chapters. And in the midst of that, he shares this, this information and this challenge about women being silent in the church, and we're all, like, confused. Listen to the other sermon. He's never left his, left his train of thought. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly prophecy. Do not forbid to speak with tongues. 
Let all things be done decently and in order. He's going to be done. These are the last words of chapter 14. And many of you are like, amen, let's move on to the good stuff. 1 Corinthians 15, right? We had a portion there, 1 Corinthians 13, that was wonderful as we talked about love. But 1 Corinthians 15, yeah. No, let's just understand this. In corporate worship, God has called us to do things decently. That word is properly and orderly. We are not supposed to be characterized by everybody speaking at once. We're not supposed to be characterized by all the different failures that the Corinthian church was manifesting. I don't know necessarily. Maybe we're too close to the forest for the trees. We can't see where where we're faulty in our worship. But I think we've had some very clear challenges that we are supposed to be taking our corporate worship seriously. And we are let all things in corporate worship specifically be done decently and in order because that is what edifies the church. And that's what, that's what he's been saying this whole time. He says, listen, the church is edified when worship is exercised in humility towards others, which supports the other main idea, the fact that the others are edified most clearly, the best, as they engage in his word. So we're, we're done this portion, and I, I'm, I'm, we're, we're done because we got to go to singing. And, uh, but there was no way I was carrying this into another week. And, uh, and we had a lot of business up front to take care of. So l- let me close in prayer, but let me encourage you. Don't think I preached a sermon that mandated my position on music because I didn't. That's not what I said. I said, listen, wherever you fall on the spectrum, you are supposed to exercise humility towards others. Whatever that looks like, own it. Edify others. Folks, if we will focus on edifying one another in our worship, all eyes come off of ourselves and onto this broader picture, and that's when God receives the most glory. Please be engaged in worship. Exercise your gifting in whatever capacity and appreciate the gifting of others because it's only those who are justified that are able to worship rightly. And so maybe our worship will draw people to Jesus Christ. Maybe there are those that are going to come into, our, on, into this room and they're not going to know Jesus Christ. And they're going to see the way we worship and people are going to come to faith. Wouldn't that be wonderful if someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ because of whatever music was played, because of whatever person was standing behind this pulpit reading scripture, because of whatever was taking place, because it's right worship and people are coming to faith. That would be beautiful. Decently and in order, properly and orderly. That's what we strive to do. But let's also do it with intentionality and passion. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this particular portion of Scripture and for the clarity that it brings as we consider the beauty of all that is contained in these words. Lord, we thank you that your word is available to us. We thank you that we can engage in it with clarity. We thank you that we can worship you in spirit and in truth, First, uh, the Gospel of John uh, teaches us. Thank you, Father, for all that we have in Christ. Thank you that we understand what justification is, that our, our sin has been placed on Jesus. His righteousness has been, has been given to us. And we can know a new life. For if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Father, these are the truths of Scripture that change our lives. Lord, as we come to you and worship each week, May we grow in our understanding of what worship is, and may we grow as we seek to edify others uh, for their edification and for your glory. May people respond as you would have them to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.